0: The digital age will raise the question of how we humans will stay relevant in the workplace to stay relevant. We have to excel cognitively, behaviorally, and emotionally in ways that technology cannot. Our guest believes that for us to become hyper learners, we need to continuously learn, unlearn, and relearn at the speed of change. To do that, we have to overcome our reflexive ways of being, seeking confirmation of what we believe. Emotionally defending our beliefs and our egos, and seeking cohesiveness of our mental models. We welcome great friend of the Innovation Show, Hyperlearner himself, prolific author and author of today's focus of today's show, which is Hyperlearning, How to Adapt to the Speed of Change. Ed Hess, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to a wonderful conversation.
0: It's always great to have you on the show, Ed. And I know there's going to be more, there's way more books in you. And speaking of books, I want to just say how helpful you've been with the writing of my book. Your last book was called humility is the new smart. It focuses a lot on feedback and being, having the humility to listen to others and to listen to their feedback. And then I went and asked you for feedback and your first email back to me was respectfully and I'm going to rip this to shreds, but I can tell you one thing, there's a pony in the haystack.
1: <laughs> and the wonderful thing, Aiden, is there was more than a pony, there was a thoroughbred, because it's a wonderful book. You have made a made it into a wonderful book. And so it's great being with you. And and I admire how you took it. You took it head on, man. There was no defensiveness and you thought and you reflected. You did exactly as the humility book asked you to do.
0: You're a good teacher. So let's dive into it. The underlying question you pose in this book is How will we pursue a meaningful life when smart technology takes over most of the jobs and skills that humans cur- currently do? How will we keep up with the pace of technological change in order to stay relevant in the workplace? The question you propose is hyper learning. So let's start with what you mean by this.
1: Yeah. By hyper learning, I mean continual, high quality learning Unlearning and relearning. I don't use the word hyper to mean, you know, really sort of edgy and, you know, and overreactive. All right. That's a modern definition. I'm using the Greek definition. So I'm taking the reader back to Greece when hyper means over and above. Okay. The highest levels of learning, unlearning, and relearning. And the reason we're going to have to basically excel at unlearning and relearning is. The pace of change, all right, technology is going to basically change how we work, how we live. It's going to be embedded into the workplace. It's going to be embedded, if you want it, in your bodies. It's going to enhance your ability, if you will, to learn. And so this ability to unlearn says things are going to change so fast. What I think I know today is not going to be relevant a year from now or two years from now. So I've got to constantly be updating my stories of how the world works, taking into account new knowledge and et cetera. And I'm gonna to have to continually learn the skills to stay ahead of the smart machines, to stay ahead of the smart robots. I'm gonna to have to continually relearn to stay in a in a if you will, to outsmart or out-emotionally engage technology. And so it's a it's, it's like a we're, we're going to be in a race against technology, a race to stay relevant, a race to to have meaning. And the, the good thing is, for at least the near future, there are things that we can do, ways of thinking and especially emotionally engaging with other human beings that technology is not going to do well. So it all comes down also to we need to upgrade our current behaviors, upgrade our current approach to life, sort of understand. And the big key in the book is is coming to grips with the fact of what I call the science of us, all right? What does the science tell me about me as a learner? Well, the science says to that Ed Hess is a suboptimal learner. The science says that Aiden is a suboptimal learner. The science says that we are basically wired to be suboptimal learners. And we have to accept that science. And it's hard for people, especially successful people and people that have good jobs. It's hard for people to say, I'm a suboptimal learner. I got all A's in school. OK, I got high grades. Well, all of that is irrelevant because they were measuring something different than what we're talking about. We're measuring your your abilities to basically think differently than you're thinking now, to think and to emotionally engage in most cases differently and so we're all going to be on a journey it's doable it's possible okay if somebody wants to be on the journey is willing to do the work and so the purpose of the book is to invite people to join the journey to hyperlearning the book is part book and part workbook it's a workbook embedded into so that basically it's you learn by doing all right you learn by doing, okay? How do I think better critically? How do I think innovatively? How do I quiet myself and be a really good listener? All right? Et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a challenge because if, we, if you want to have meaningful work in the workplace going forward, you're going to have to be able to excel at doing something technology can't do. It's that yeah. simple.
0: I found it so interesting to use the book. And I was lucky because last week's show I recorded on a Wednesday. So I had an extra couple of days to do the book because, as you say, it's quite taxing, because you bring us through a journey of learning. It's not just a learning of it's just not a journey of pouring information into our minds. It's like you keep saying now, walk away, step away from the book let it seep in. And I thought that was really interesting. But I'm going to keep it going here because I'd like to share as much as we can in the time that we have. Because you say our ancestors on the Great Savannah had to learn how to survive and thrive in a completely new environment. And I love this, where they often fell prey literally to larger animals. Our ancestors too had to learn and relearn. And you believe that this is what we all have to do in this digital age, because it's like them being thrust into a new environment. This is a new environment. But the biggest difficulty for us is have to unlearn what we already know.
1: I think the biggest difficulty for us, one of the biggest difficulties is our ancestors learned that in order to succeed on the Savannah, they had to collaborate and work in teams, families had to group together. And multiple hunters would go out or multiple, multiple people looking for vegetables. And it was brought back and we shared in, in many areas of the world today, the business environment is very, very competitive. All right. It's me versus you going for that higher position, going for that raise, going for that bonus, going for that good review. All right. And in the world we're going into the workplace is going to basically be made up of small teams of people. And collaborating, just like our ancestors collaborated, is going to be mission critical. So it is no longer going to be me versus you. It's going to be us. All right? And that's a huge change, because organizations evaluate people individually based on their performance. So all that's going to have to change to evaluating people on their ability, if you will, to learn their developmental performance. All right. Their ability to am I am I improving my thinking so I can think the different ways technology can't think. Am I improving how I emotionally engage with people so that we have a chance of being a high performance team? All right. And am I working on what's going on inside of myself, all right, to basically bring my best self to work and overcome my, my natural inclinations? We fundamentally got to rewire ourselves. We are wired, all right, to go out in the world and the science says we see what we believe. We seek confirmation of what we think we know. We seek affirmation of our ego, nice little head pats, okay? And we seek cohesiveness of our stories of how the world works. We're basically one giant confirmation machine. We are a prediction machine, all right? The, the the science, neuroscience shows that our body is basically making up our answer to what's going on in our world before we even know what we're seeing, all right? Because it is so, it's, it's it's ahead of us, and it's basically giving us the answer. So we don't, we, we really are very reactive. And what has to happen is, is that we have to basically take control, all right? Take control of what's going on inside our bodies in order to overcome our reflexive, normal way of being. So that we can think better listen better, relate better, and collaborate better. And that's the whole concept of inner peace, the self-work that has to be done to come to the workplace, to come to the table, to come to the meeting, all right? And it's basically all your life, not just work, but basically to come with your best self. And that best self is a quiet ego, quiet mind, a quiet body, and a positive emotional state. Because ultimately, when we all get through this in five to ten years with all the new technology coming, The key human uniqueness of human beings is going to be emotions. And emotions, generally speaking, you go to the workplace, and the workplace will say, don't get emotional. Don't get emotional. Let's be logical. Let's be rational. Well, the science shows none of us are rational or logical. All right? The science basically shows that emotions are wrapped up into every state of our cognitive processing. And the fact is, emotions are going to be our differentiator, how we emotionally connect and relate. To each other, to our customers, to our friends, to our community. And so emotions are going to play a big role in what makes us different. And sort of that's the story. We got to rewire ourselves. We got to rewire ourselves. We got to not be reflexive machines seeking confirmation, affirmation, and cohesiveness. Instead, we got to be great explorers, being able to go into the unknown and figure things out. We got to basically actively seek the new, the novel, all right? We got to embrace differences. Yes and, not yes but. We got to go out and actively seek information which disconfirms what we believe. And there's a whole list of things in the book as to what are the rewiring goals. We have to rewire ourselves in order to excel in the digital age
0: and you tell us research suggests that children have fewer prior experiences and assumptions to draw from. So therefore, they're better learners of novel information than adults are, and are more receptive to updating their beliefs. It's only when they become later in life. And we talked about this on the last show that we did together on your book, Humility is the New Smart, that the biggest thing is when you get some point in life where you're deemed successful in some way, when you climb to the top of that mountain, you then defend it. And we had Rita McGrath on the show a few times weeks ago, and we talked about this with organisations that that's what they do, they build a business model, they put a moat around it, and then they defend like crazy. And I thought there was a huge overlap between that. And what we do as human beings about defending our points of view and our status.
1: There's huge overlap, because organisations are made up of individuals, right? All right, organizations are individuals, and organizations make decisions because the individuals are making the decisions. The the, and so the the overlap is is huge because just like a company will go extinct, okay, it will actually go out of business. I mean, a human being won't go extinct. It may go out of work, okay. Instead, all right, I mean, you're not going to physically die if you if you don't adapt and become a. a uh, you know, a hyper learner or adapt to the to the digital age, um, but you're you're exactly right. Children. It, it depends on which experts you talk to, but just say up until age 10, children are just wonderful learners. Okay, think about the time that you learned how to ride a bicycle. Okay, you know, it's somebody may have you know held the bike and you got on it. You may have had training wheels, but what did you do? You saw this thing. What do I? Oh, yeah, and You watch someone else riding a bike. I want to ride a bike. Okay, I get on. I start moving my feet. What happens? Bam, I fall over. Okay, what's the kid do? The kid gets up, may have some tears, may not, dusts himself off, looks around, puts on the handlebar, tries again, gets back on. All right, Have the courage to try, the resilience to bounce back, and that's what we humans are going to need need to be able to do. And what that means is that we have got to open ourselves up, uh, if you will, and sort of understand that not only do we have to unlearn, but we got to manage our ego and our fears. By the time we get to adults, we've got ourselves defined. And so many of us define ourselves as a smart person or successful because of how we've gone up the rank and everything. And what's so ironic is in the digital age we're going into, the smart people are going to be the people that are really excel at not knowing because the machines are going to know much more than we're going to know. We're going to be this, the discoverers, the explorers, the innovators, the creators, the people that can go into the unknown and sense-make, emergent thinking, all right? to In order to innovate, to create, to explore, to discover, to make sense of the of the world, what has got to happen inside of you? All of that machinery, which is looking for confirmation, all of that machinery, which is looking for affirmation, all of that machinery that's looking to be correct and right, has to be tamped down, has to be tamped down. It won't go away, but we have to lower it, lower it to allow us to be more childlike, to be more childlike. And the people that are able to manage what's going on inside of themselves, okay? That's so key here. You've got to be able to manage what's going on inside yourselves, to manage your emotions, to manage your thinking. I mean, the research shows that basically, you know, our mind wanders 50% of the time, all right? No, we have to learn how to quiet our mind just like in our conversation, all right? One has to, if one's listening, one has to quiet their mind. So I'm totally taking in what you're saying. I'm not critiquing it. I'm not thinking up my answer while Ed's talking. I'm just using us as an example, and I know
0: <laughs> I'm doing my best. Yeah. But, Think but, of my next question.
1: Yeah, and you know, I'm not thinking <laughs> of the next question to, to ask him. I'm I'm fully in, sort of engaged, and my mind's not wondering. That is what allows more reality to come into our being and helps us overcome only seeing what we're believing, hearing what we're believing, or looking for. Oh, okay. Aiden said this. I I agree with that. What about the other 10 things? I don't remember those 10 things. I remember the thing he said. Yeah. So we got to rewire ourselves, and it's doable. It's doable. Okay. What it takes is self discipline and daily work. Probably, if you want to be good at this, the rest of your life, all right. But the fact is, there is joy in the journey. There is joy in the journey.
0: And you talked about mind wandering there, and I thought this was really important. You you put a lot of time into this, actually, in the book, and you shared that understanding the interplay between the conscious and subconscious thinking, and knowing how best to manage and leverage that interplay is becoming a very valuable human skill in this digital age i'd love if you shared a little bit about that subconscious
1: mind is so much bigger than our conscious mind all right in other words our body is processing so much more information that we know about and there's you know i don't know but how many whatever aliens of links there are in our brain all right between different you will ideas or concepts but we basically use a very small percentage of it all right in our if if you will in our conscious thinking your subconscious your subconscious if you can get a in a state of flow all right and we'll talk about flow in a minute like being totally in the moment, like an athlete that's in flow, okay? Most people understand those examples. But totally involved, you've lost sense of time, you've lost sense of your ego. Everything is sort of flowing, your body, your emotions, your cognitive ability, everything's sort of flowing into, you know, the project or the uh, activity, okay? It's that when in those times like that, when we have this inner peace that the subconscious starts in the play and things come up into your mind that are sort of, wow, very creative, imaginative. You can also get, you can also access your subconscious by basically taking meditation walks to go and walk in nature and not let your mind think, just be looking at the flowers or the trees, not thinking about them, just looking at the colors and having a blank, not thinking, having sort of a blank mind. And you'll will, you will walk around and something will pop into your head. And you'll say, where did that come from? That's a, that's a good idea. And it may be about the problem you were working on yesterday. It may be something about a talk you had with someone at, at home the morning before or whatever. But something completely new will come in your mind. And that's coming from your subconscious. And the more we can basically enable our subconscious to come through, the more we're going to be able to create, innovate, discover, and make sense of this new world. And so good, good learners have trained themselves so they can move between conscious thinking and then free up subconscious thinking. And it's not rocket science. None of this is rocket science. It just takes daily practices, working an hour a day on what's going on in
0: yourself. One of the things I think is so often overlooked in the knowledge economy is you need to use your body to power your brain. I I often think of exercise as plugging in the phone to charge it up because you're charging your brain. And one of the ways and you're a a great practitioner of this, and I think it's important to say you weren't before, which is meditation, because meditation is core to getting, you know, getting the best out of your mind. And for those of us who might not believe that, look at Ray Dalio, for example, one of the most successful business people in the world. And you've spent a lot of time with him on your earlier book, Learn or Die, and you spend a huge amount of time with him, and he spent so much time every day meditating. And I think this is really important, and it's something I'm still learning. I'm getting better and better. I'm up to twenty minutes now, but it took me quite some time. And sometimes I do get lost, and it. it's fantastic. But I'm not quite there yet. And and you know, I think it, in the past it was seen as this kind of fuzzy thing, but now it's becoming essential.
1: Meditation. This. Meditation is taking on real legitimacy because of the deep science coming out of various major universities, major universities. Stanford, Wisconsin, uh, Mass General, the big hospital. The, the the science is clear that meditation does quote rewire us, all right? And meditation and it takes it takes time and it's a it's, and and you get better the longer you do it. I mean, when, when, when I started meditation, meditation is the easiest type of meditation is mindfulness meditation, and that is basically either sitting in a certain way or lying down on a, on a, a, a athletic mat or your, your couch or whatever, and just focusing on your breathing. Breathe in, breathe out. And then when your mind wanders, let it wander. Don't get mad. Don't get upset. Just refocus your mind on your breathing. So bring your mind back to your breathing. I mean, when I started out, you know, I had a hard time going a minute focused on my mind. And then I worked up to two minutes and I worked up to five minutes and I worked up to 10 minutes. And after a couple of months, two, three months, I worked up to 20 minutes. And then I, I kept kept working. And over the years, I've added different types of meditation. In fact. Uh, Yesterday, I started a, a new meditation uh, that, that I did for 10 minutes on basically um, focusing on my heart and my heart energy. And that was new for me. And, you know, I'll, but so you build sort of a you build sort of a repertoire of meditation. Very. The number of people that I have worked with and the number of people I know that are outstanding performers in the sense of being good thinkers, good listeners, good collaborators, positive people, people that are, that basically uh, are very compassionate in helping team members, basically great leaders. Um, These, these people, generally speaking, um, you know, all meditate. They do different types of meditation. Some people meditate in the morning. Some people meditate in the evening. Some people meditate during the day. On break. Have a two-minute meditation break. All right? Two-minute centering break. I have a company that I do a lot of work with. Every meeting in that company starts with a three to five-minute meditation. Every meeting. So everybody is gets calmed down, gets centered, okay? Ready to basically have a high quality making meaning conversation without ego and without fear and all the political games and all of them, you know, who did what to what and all the people trying to figure out, do somebody like me? I don't want to look stupid, uh, et cetera. Get all of that stuff out of the workplace so that basically we can. And so meditation is, is the pathway. It's a pathway to a quiet ego. It's the, it, it's how you basically prevent your mind wandering when you're listening to people. It's, so it's a pathway to being a good listener. It's also a pathway to learning how to deal with your emotions. So it's it's mission critical. And is it, Do you? It, does anybody ever get perfect? No, I would tell you probably, I don't know him, but I've read so many of his books. I mean, you know, the, the Dalai Lama, um, uh, w- would say, and he's been doing this. Gosh, he's 86 years old. So I mean, let's just say 80 years, all right. And he says, "Oh, you know, a dumb monk yesterday, a dumb monk today." All right, Still got work to do. All right. Uh, so, uh, so yes, meditation is mission critical, and meditation is talked all of the sciences in the book and and I invite people to try it and I've never had anybody that tried it that didn't say it helps.
0: There's something you said there about that company you work with and it's become part of the workplace and it raises a big question that you raise in the book that the workplace drastically needs to change and this command and control culture is changing but it's slower than we need it to be. And you quote Irish poet and philosopher John O'Donohue in your book, and he says in his book *Anam Cara*, "Imagine how lovely it would be if you could be yourself at work and express your true nature, giftedness, and imagination." And you tell us, it is through high-quality, meaning-making conversations, we're caring, trusting teams that we can have the chance of experiencing what you call collective flow. And I said I'd come back to flow, but fl- f- collective flow is the highest state of flow and the highest level of team engagement.
1: And what that means is is that the, the team has built trust. I trust you. That I trust you that you want me to be as, as successful as you want to be. I trust that you're not going to set me up to look bad. I trust that you're not going to basically... You know, attack me personally. I'm I'm trusting you not setting me up to look bad in front of the boss. You care about me as an individual. And so in order to build caring, trusting teams, people have to spend time building trust and people have to behave. If you and I are on the same team and I want you to care about me, okay, all right. I need to start out having you believe that I care about you. So how would I behave for you to come to believe I care about you as a person? My book is very behavioral. It is very active, action oriented. So it's into, okay, so how does a person behave to either engender trust or to basically have another person feel that they care about them? Once you get that caring, trusting, feeling, it takes the, it, it, it sort of opens people up. Egos come down. I'm not as fearful. I'm safe. I'm in good hands. I'm with people that care. Goes back to Amy Edmondson's psychological safety, which is so critical. And what I'm, what I'm talking about is operational, operationalizing psychological safety through behaviors. All right. It's, it's, It's your facial expressions, it's how you look at people, it's how you react to people, Uh, it's how you listen. The number one thing which says that I care about you is that I actually listen to you and before I tell you what's wrong with what you said, I take the time to make sure I truly understood what you said. let me paraphrase what you just said. Did you mean this? This is what I heard, where am I off base? The book gets that granular so you can walk out and have my checklist, okay? Don't react, don't tell. Ask questions first, honest, true questions, okay? You just can't go through the motions with this stuff because our emotions will pick it up. So what's collective flow? And also examples of collective flow are great athletes, all right, you look at great athletes, whether especially in basketball teams and small teams or tennis players or great great musicians, all right? violinist okay great opera stars all right anybody that basically is is coming they get themselves in a position and they get into it and they are the work there's there's not me and the work it's together so when you get collective flow is when a team all right does this i'll give you an example i have a a company that the senior leadership team five people uh, uh in here every quarter and we have a we have a meeting and I've been working with them for years and we built trust caring trust they can walk into the meeting we do some group hugs and everything and we sit down we check in how's everybody doing and we do meditation all right so we check in verse people emotionally how you're doing meditation and we can start talking okay and within 15 minutes we will be in a state of collective flow and we can have a two to three hour conversation that does not have an agenda and everyone will walk away with, wow, there were four or five new ideas, new wows. Why? Because we got in collective flow and it just sort of flowed. You say something and it would trigger something in me and I say, yes, and this, and someone say, yes, and this, and add on. That's, that is what collective flow is, is when everybody, it's totally brought themselves into the conversation without ego, without fear, without seeking to be right. Okay. And that is also collective flow results in what's called collective intelligence. The organizations of the future are going be, that are going to succeed are going to be the organizations that have Teams that have the highest levels of collective intelligence. No individual is going to be smart enough to win going forward in the, in the business world. So it's this whole process of coming back to teams, which means survival of the fittest mentalities, competition. Okay? You cannot command and control or direct somebody working for you to think creatively, innovatively, or critically. You cannot command or control or direct them. I want you to emotionally engage with you. Okay. That, that doesn't work. The command and control. And why? Because all of the stuff that's comes out of the manufacturing industrial revolution, all of the stuff that can be command and control, robots going to do that. Yeah. Robots going to do that. We're going, we're going to be needed to do the stuff the robots can not do.
0: One of the, the exercises you share, one of the many exercises you share in the book is called the deadly peas. And I'd love if you'd share this with our audience, because it's something we can all do at home. And it just gives a flavor of what you can expect from reading this great book.
1: The Deadly Peas is an exercise that, I, that that is in chapter uh, two of the book that, that comes from a wonderful man who's passed away now, Bill Turner. Bill Turner was the wealthiest, humble person I ever met in my life. All right. And uh, uh, he was he was he was worth multi billion dollars when multi billion dollars was a was a big number, but nobody knew it. And so he basically he was look, he was looking at you know pride. He had two things: pride and love. And so in the book, and I'm very grateful because his his publisher, uh, Mr. Turner, passed away a couple of years ago, and so I got permission from his publisher to put in his sort of diagnostic on pride and diagnostic on love, and that for people to take as to whether, you know, are, are, and it helps you basically come to the conclusion, okay, as to, wait a minute, am I am I being caring? Am I being trusting? Am I being the type of person I want to be? And it's part of the whole chapter, which is trying to help people form their daily intentions. How do I want to behave today? And I recommend to people that you create your daily intentions, how I want to behave. Okay. All right. And to review them every morning and visualize yourself behaving that way. And it doesn't have to be complex. You don't have to say, I want to be the, the, the best person who solves these kinds of problems. No. Do you want to be kind? Do you want to be caring? Do I want to be a good listener? Okay. Do I want to smile at people? Because smiles basically send positive emotions and people smile back and that, that lets chemicals go in their bodies and they feel good. So do I want to smile? And... and I learned about daily intentions from the Dalai Lama reading one of his books. And, um, and, you know, he does it every morning. And I'm saying, well, gosh, this guy, if he's doing it, why don't I try it? And this stuff is magical, especially if you visualize, okay? And, and my number one, I, I have a whole list, okay? My, my first one is be kind. So I visualize, what does that mean today? How would I be kind in this meeting? Or how would I be kind if I saw this person? What's that mean? Be kind. Another one of mine is slow down. Slow down the motor inside. Slow down my thinking. Don't overreact. Slow down. Don't get, don't let my emotions capture me. Manage my emotions. All right. Another one I had to learn was reflectively listen listen to learn, not to confirm. Back in the old days, I was a five-star interrupter. I prided myself on having the right answer the fastest of anybody in the room. (laughs) And that started in the second grade. And that took me through age 33. I became very successful doing that until I had a big upheaval in my life and basically got called on, on it and, and said, if you don't change, you know, you're out of here. All right. And, and so this idea of, of, of how do I want to be? So your daily intentions, it doesn't have to be a long list. And then in the evening you grade yourself. How did I do? Well, I'm, I wanted to be a good listener. And I interrupted Jane three times in that meeting. Okay. So what are you going to do about it? I need to make amends. And no, I'm not going to send an email because I can see her tomorrow. I'm going to go up and I'm going to apologize. Jane, I'm sorry. I interrupted you three times. That's not how I want to behave. I ask for your forgiveness. I should have been a better listener. And give me another chance. And once you get on that type of journey where you're trying to basically improve your behaviors how you think, how you listen, how you emotionally engage, you are making it much easier for you to basically be the type of person the technology is not going to be able to do. Smart robots, all right, smart machines are not going to be able to behave those ways. And those ways underlie doing the type of thinking and work and emotionally engaging that the technology can't do. It all comes together. That's why it's a new way of being and a new way of working. But the workplace has got to change to allow the new way of being in because I can't work on this stuff at home and go to the workplace and be a butthole. Okay. <laughs> okay. I could have said worse, but I
0: don't. <laughs> I've heard
1: Out of respect for the audience and everything. But, you know, that's why the workplace has got to basically allow me to work on being my best self because the workplace's goal is for everybody to be their best self, because that's going to be the highest level of human performance.
0: One of the, the show's kind of themes is jumping around from leadership to the workplace to, you know, guests like Amy Edmondson, like you mentioned, understanding all those different things, because you cannot be innovative until the workplace is right. You cannot be innovative until your mindset is right. And this is a huge part of what you talk about. But in chapter two, you look back to look forward and you look at the wisdom of great people over the years. And I wanted to zone in on something if you don't mind, which is in chapter two, where you echo the wisdom of others, you reference Mary Catherine Bateson, who is noted author and cultural anthropologist. She's also Margaret Mead's daughter. And decades ago, you tell us you were given her book composing a life which I've bought on your recommendation by and you were given this by an executive recruiter who had determined you were not the best candidate for a job, but you were in the top two. And they met he met you and said to you, I don't think you're the right person for this job, and gave you the book. And you were absolutely floored by this. You were disappointed, but also, you were very curious to what that book spoke to you. And I'd love if you'd share this little personal story with us.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was a uh you're right I was uh, I was in the final final two for a CEO job at a company I really wanted that job and we went to uh, the the recruiter called me and said uh, you know um, he was respectful he didn't want to come to my office he says how about come over to my office I was, I was living in Washington DC so it was easy it's you know easy easy walking go over and we sit down and he said you're the you're the most qualified person for this job. And man, I just went back It <laughs> Okay. He says, but I'm not going to recommend you. And I says, what? What do you mean you're not going to recommend? You just said I'm the best for the job. He said, you're the type of person, you're never going to be happy because you're always going to climb another mountain. You're just so ambitious. And I think you'd leave this company in two years and I was floored. And he handed me the book, and he said, I think you need to read this book. And if you read it, call me, and I'll take you to lunch. So I took it, composing a life, and I said, this is all crazy. And I started reading the book, and Mary uh, had some baits and Basically, said, women approach life different than men. Most women than most men. There's always exceptions. They make a patchwork quilt. They don't invest their whole being in their work. They have family, they have friends, they have hobbies and stuff. Men generally invest their whole being in the work. Their ego's wrapped up in title, whatever, money, whatever no matter whether it's an executive position or just going up the ladder. And that women basically have their life invested in much more in relationships across the board. And I read that book. And I gave it to my wife. And she looked at me and she says, oh, yeah, I've read all her work. She says, well, (laughs) she says this. And my wife says, well, she's right. She says, so, you agree that I got all my eggs in one basket? She says, you got everything in one basket, not just your eggs. You got your milk, your <laughs> bread, your cheese, everything, okay? And and that just sort of opened up to, wait a minute. There's a different way to have meaning in everything. And and it sort of started me on this. It Where, where it took me was it really took me back to my undergraduate days when when my passion was humanistic psychology and i went back and read some of uh, i was very fortunate to have two two teachers who one who studied under abraham maslow and the other one studied under carl rogers and oh. i took out and i took out their books and then i said wait a minute i'm got to go and then, you know and I, I in fact even had my professor's book, and Maslow's book, and Carl Rogers' books. And I hadn't opened them up, and at that time, it was, ooh, 12, 15 years. Started reading, I said, like, wait a minute. And then it just, it, 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 it came to me. I had invested my entire ego in my career. And then I had to figure out, why did I do that? Well, I did that because I wanted to make my parents proud of me because I came from a very humble background, and they would save up money and take me to the bookstore once a month and allow me to buy a book. And I mean, they, you know, they. I was fortunate to have a, col- a scholarship to go to college, but you know, they did everything they could. When I went to law school, the law school I went to required a coat and tie every day. I didn't have a coat or, coat or suit. My family took me and bought me, saved all their money up and bought me one suit. And I went to law school and the first four or five months wore the same suit six days a week to law school until I told the dean that he had to change the policy. He was discriminating against poor boys, poor kids. And, uh, And so it all just sort of fit is that, wait a minute, it made me rethink and made me redefine myself i don't i don't know if that helps or not it's probably sorry for getting so personal or but but uh, it, all, it, it was a, it was a it was that was a very interesting year I, I, I don't know whether i write about i write about this on the, the book website where uh, my designer said why don't you do a section called who's ed really and he said and get really real and so i did that it was sort of uncomfortable, but I did it. And I have the section where we talk about this, but at the same time I lost that job, I also had two or three other major, two really other major personal setbacks. So all of a sudden my life came tumbling down and that's when I had to basically go back to basics and start remaking myself. And am I perfect? Mm -hmm. By no means, by no means, but it's been a good journey.
0: Before we finish up, there's a quote I wanted to share by you in the book that encapsulated the spirit of the book and your own spirit to me from what I know, and what I've read, you and you start the book with this, but I'm going to finish the show with this because it it is really part of your prolific writer, prolific learner, prolific worker on yourself. And you say, for those of us out there who think it's too much work or feel overwhelmed by the journey that lies ahead, you say, dive in. And just by just like being in the ocean, you may feel battered by the waves of the new the different and even the weird. But just as in the ocean, when you dive down under the waves, you will find calmness when you reflect deeply about the key points in the book, and have high quality, making meaning conversations with trusted others. I thought that was a beautiful way for me to close today's show. And I invite you to to finish the show and on, on, on your terms and how you would like to.
1: Well, f- first, thank you for having me. And th- always thank a you pleasure. For, th- thank you for a, a wonderful conversation. And uh, uh, I I invite uh, your followers and your listeners uh, to, to think about the journey to, to join the journey. Uh, I, I believe that The book is science-based, but it's very practical and how-to, and the science is behind it. There is real, this is all real, and my goal in writing the book is basically to give people or basically help people live a meaningful life, have meaningful work and meaningful relationships in this very Turbulent era that we're going to go into, which has been made more turbulent because of COVID-19, but that is accelerating the technology and the difference, the movement, and the difference of working, and and the the journey to in you know join the journey to best self, and if that's best self at home, it's best self with your friends, it's best self, and and everybody that I know that is on a similar journey. There's there's a richness to it, and there's a it's it's sort of like you've you you've got a a a foundation that yeah we're going to get knocked around, but with this foundation I'm not going to tip totally over, all right, and sort of gives us the confidence that we can handle it. Together we can do this, okay, and it it comes back to if you will affirming finding and affirming our humanness and understanding that our humanness is no different than every other human being's humanist. All right? And to be able to, and there'll be better relationships, work will be better, life will be better. And that's sort of what's the purpose of all of this as we go into this era where everything is, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be basically thrown onto the savannas like our ancestors. Yeah. And we can help each other. And so I invite people, and people can go on the, the book website, www.edhess.org, and there's the, the prologue is free. And if you end up buying the book, you go back to the website, and there's a 143-page My Hyper Learning Journal, which the publisher was so kind, created for you that you can download or do digitally it's free that you can keep your journal and answer the workshops and the reflection times and you create your own story and it allows you to keep improving your story. And so I I, I invite people to consider to consider the journey and uh, and I and I wish everyone well.
0: Fantastic Ed it's been Always an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And I mentioned you're a prolific writer. I can see your books on your bookshelf beside, strategically placed there for subliminal advertising, but they're fantastic books. I've enjoyed every one. I've only read two so far, and I intend to go back to the back catalogue if, if I can before you write again. But uh, it's an absolutely brilliant book. I'm glad you shared where to find you. Ed Hess, it's always a pleasure. And I just want to mention next week's show, The Nocturnal Brain, nightmares neuroscience and the secret world of sleep with guy leshner and that will be next week's show it's a really fascinating read i've only read the back cover so far but i'll read it this week and always a pleasure and thanks for joining us in our first innovation show video show as well this is our first innovate this is where we do it uh the books are behind us and i still have to get through a lot of those future shows are there And I want to thank our guest today. It's always a pleasure. And you've been so helpful to me in my own personal journey, Ed. Author of Hyperlearning, How to Adapt to the Speed of Change. Ed Hess, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Big hug, my man. Big hug.
0: Big hug to you, man. All the best. Take care. Good to see you.